You're listening to The Christina Silva Show, and we're bringing you a holiday edition with one of our very special guests who knows the plight of safety, season greetings, and special services. He is employed with over 20 years in our U.S. Navy, both active and reserve, and he specializes as a master at arms to our U.S. Navy. The Kitty Hawk will always remember two tours in the Middle East with the Army at Iraq and Kuwait because of the decorated and dedicated service of Ray Rangel. Now, Ray Rangel spends his lifetime keeping our public and community safe, and he's educated toward his doctoral studies in strategic management. He completed his master's in public administration, and he has a bachelor's in business management. As a business owner, he wants to credit his wife, Ceci Rangel, because they operate an amazing organization we're going to tell you about today. Today in December, on the 15th, we want to thank all of our armed forces for serving around the world for our safety, freedom, and our rights. And that is no tall order to forget, because freedom isn't free. So joining us is Ray Rangel on the Christina Silva Show, educating our veterans live about how to give back from heart and soul with a badge. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christina Silva Show. Uh, Hello, Christina. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, I want to say thank you so much for community service because your specialty in military policing will include relationships that you built over a 20-year career in the armed forces. And so our show on its 16th year is dedicated to remembering our heroes, those lost and those currently on active duty. But you and I, as fellow comrades and veterans, we dedicate our lives to helping other veterans use their benefits like we have. So let's start with your childhood so we can figure out the guts of who Ray Rangel truly is before the military. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I was an average kid, you know, mom and dad. Um, but the thing about me was my parents started having kids at a young age. So I was born with a twin, and my mom was 14 at the time, and my dad was 17. So it's the concept of kids having kids. So you could just imagine how we got raised. Um, then we got bigger and older. My dad was a sole provider. My mom was a caregiver. So, we, I mean, we weren't poor, but we didn't have extra. So everything we had, we had to earn and work. So my dad taught me how to work hard. My mom was more into the education part. So she kind of promoted education. Um, I played football in high school. That was my number one thing goal was to start college and get some type of scholarship. But I guess I wasn't good enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so normal upraising, just had to work my, you know, work for everything that I have. That's incredible. So are you from the South? Well, I was born in El Paso, Texas. And then we, my father's from Juarez, Mexico, and my mom's from El Paso. Then we moved to a small Texas town, uh, Amarillo. Amazing. So, Nothing but, you know, cattle, you know, f- football, that's the biggest thing there, you know? So we call you Rangel because you know how to get on the range with the cattle and understand the true ethics about working from a young age. I want to thank your parents. Um, tell me a little bit about your siblings. Did you guys tear up in the, in the uh, farm areas? Well, you know what? Uh, 
I have a twin brother, so I he went the opposite way. He, you know, he made mis- his mistakes. He got involved with drugs, so he kind of went the way south side, you know. Uh, but now he's normal, you know. He's recovered, um, working, you know, no kids, no family, just wants to be a single guy. Thank goodness. That's awesome. Life comes with its challenges. And that is why it's so great to have each and every person on the show share their testimony because we're real people. But we also have a special gift when we learn and are trained by the military. So after high school or during high school, how did you discover the Navy? And amongst all the branches, how did you choose to join the U.S. Navy? Okay, so at 18, I always thought years were so long, like four years. And I I thought to myself, man, that is such a long time. Because at 18, you really don't recognize, you know, how long a year (laughs) really is. So so I went to to the recruiter's office, and that's where they had all the branches. So I went to the Air Force, the Army, the Marines. They all had a four-year program. And I thought to myself, no, that's way too long. And then when I spoke <laughs> to the Navy, they had the two-year apprenticeship program. And I was like, wow. I go, how does that work? And they told me, you join the Navy, you go to boot camp, we send you to your first uh, command, then you are undesignated, which means while you're there, you can stride for any field. And then we enlist, and then we send you to school. And if you don't like it, after two years, you can uh, get out. I was like, well, two years, sign me up. <laughs> That's incredible. So did you sign up for active duty at first from high school? And was it through yes, the, the ROTC the, program? No, I was my senior year, and they had the delayed entry program. There you so go. So I knew that everybody was preparing for college and and I wasn't ready to start college. You know, I was, uh, my GPA wasn't that great because I was a normal jock. You know, I just wanted to play <laughs> ball and do bare minimum homework. You know? so, <laughs> so I wasn't really thinking about what I should be preparing myself for because there was no guidance, no, no that, that, uh, direction. I just wanted, uh, I was just figuring things out. That's amazing. So that probably helped you fare really well in boot camp with leadership. How did you do when you stepped on the feet to go and train to become a sailor? Uh, well, boot camp was a culture shock. I mean, I'm from Texas. They sent me to San Diego. Amazing place. Beautiful. Boot camp was, you know, a lot of yelling, screaming, marching, and learning the Navy uh, history, the lifestyle. But wow. what made it cool was I was around other people my age. So that encouraged us because we all came from all different areas of the U.S. And we're all in this one unit and we're all suffering and we're all going through the same thing. So that's what kept me moving on. Camaraderie. Well, Ray, that is so amazing that you share. You got to be through the military around people your age that came from all walks of life. But one thing the military does is it breaks us down and it conditions us to be equal in our uniforms and also to know the history of the cost of freedom. So we just passed Pearl Harbor, the anniversary where we remember the attack on the ship. And we also want to pay homage to all those that served during that era of World War II. Imagine all of the wars before World War I to present of those that we want to thank. Are you still in touch with some of your comrades that you went to boot camp with? Yes. 
it's very strange. I have six buddies. We were all in the same ship. Uh, we all met in San Diego. We we all partied together. We rented a house together when we were there. And I was 18 years old, so it was the best time of my life. I was just working, work hard, play hard. That's what I learned with the Navy. <laughs> you know, amazing. So, well, can you still fit in your uniform from boot camp? <laughs> oh no, no, no. There's no way. I've gained at least 40 pounds. Amazing. Well, who was your greatest mentor when you first got to your duty station? Where was your first duty station? And did you guys sail away right away, or did you stay stateside in an office space? What was your MOS and everything? Well, what happened was after boot camp, I went straight home. I was there for, for like a week, and then they sent me straight to San Diego. I reported to the U.S. Kitty Hawk. And when I'm walking up to this battle or this aircraft carrier, I'm thinking to myself, what did I do and where <laughs> am I? And I was scared of it. I mean, scared because it was just so dead, dead. I mean, I grew up in Texas, so I've never seen anything that huge. So I'm walking in and there's 2,000 people walking around, all the pathways. I have to find my way and somebody has to check me in. It was just a whole different environment. And I was like, shock. You know, I was in, in shock. So, City on the ocean. Wow. Yeah. I finally got checked in. I, I met my unit. Uh, I met my per- personnel that was supposed to check me in and show me the ship. And if you've ever been in the ship, everything looks the same. So yes. it took me at least a month to kind of know where I'm going, where the galley's at where the restrooms are at, where the weight room's at. So it was a challenging task. Oh, yes. Some of the terms we say on the Christina Silva show have to do with analogies, port side, starboard side, the bulkhead, you know, the chow hall. We have to remember all of these different terms and you're new and you're young. And once you train and you move up the ranks, share with me about active duty and understanding the reserves, because I want the world to understand the difference between naval active duty and reserves. Okay, so when I was active duty, it was a full-time job. You're living there, you're working there uh, on the ship. We had to do six-month tours, so we did Westpacs. So when you're gone, you're gone. So it's a real deployment. You're on the ship, and that is your home for six months. And all you do is just work. And once you hit a port, then you have a couple of days off. You go in there and, you know, enjoy yourself, sightseeing, you know, uh, hit the bars, you know, that's what the guys, the young guys did. Um, and you do that. And so I've been to Hawaii, Korea, Japan. So at 18 years old, I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, I, I joined the Navy. I went from Texas to San Diego, then from San Diego to all these other countries that I would have never been to. And I was like, just amazed, you know, uh, to have the opportunity. So we did the six months, we came back, and then the ship goes on uh, dry dock. That's when they upfit the whole ship. So that's at least a, a year. Right. Then, then I had six months left of my two years, and that's when I said, hey, we're getting ready to deploy again. You want to rent less? I was like, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I go, I've seen everything <laughs> that the Navy has shown me. I go, I'm just going to get my benefits and go home. Right, right. This is incredible to know, everyone. We created our charity called Cammy's Two Civvies. So we're talking with Ray Rangel, our special guest, 
MA1 retired of the U.S. Navy, both active duty and reserves. He served from 1993 to 1995 and decided to give more of his life going to Iraq and serving with the Army from 95 to 96 and then 2010 to 2011 and going to Kuwait for our freedom. George, I have to ask you the serious part of the show. When you deployed, how did you feel leaving your family mates behind and you know, you shared the fear of joining boot camp. Were there certain fears that you had as a reservist leaving active duty whereby you'd work your regular job, but then you'd have to go to naval reserve duty? Did you feel a disconnect and some sort of fears when you had to deploy those two times? Well, after living active duty, that's when I moved to Las Vegas, joined the reserve unit. So I knew that I wanted to do 20 years, but not active duty. Sure. So the, the reserve was just a part-time thing you know we showed we showed up once a month we drilled and we worked on our field um then we did two to three weeks out of the year so it was actually fun so it was a break from your active duty or your your real job your everyday job so it was kind of fun I mean we it was my opportunity to just have fun but still get paid while I'm gone from my job and being a reservist, um, when I got deployed, when I was when I first got my orders, I was deployed with the army. I so see. I'm Navy, but we're military police. So I guess the our army needed a lot of help back in 2005. So we were the first Navy unit deployed with an MP battalion to help them with their army missions. So I was excited. We're all motivated. Uh, that makes us end with active duty Navy also. And they pulled us to Fort Bliss. That's when we did three months of the infantry training and carried all that gear. And I give credit to the Army. They wake up at 4 o'clock every morning, work out. While us sailors, we're probably getting back at 4 o'clock from the bar trying to get two hours of sleep to get to work. So... It was a big change, culture change. Um, My goodness. So fans, you're listening to United States Marine Corps veteran host and ambassador Christina Silva with Ray Rangel sharing that his Army and Navy career working experience equals a Marine. Air, land, and sea. Just kidding, Ray. Man, we want to thank all of our services. So did the Kitty Hawk have a landing ship for our Air Force? Amazing aircraft? Well, yes, whenever we had the air wing on, so they, we basically had over 3,000 people on the ship while we're out to sea running uh, plans and, and, and missions. So they had all types of aircraft, all types. And uh, it was just cool to see uh, planes landing and taking off over of such of a short uh, flight deck. Tell us about the way that the Kitty Hawk defends our nation. Uh, the U.S. Kitty Hawk, we are part of a battle group with other ships, battleships. So we were assigned to the West Coast uh, region. So by us going out to sea with the battle group, we run uh, war operations just as if we were going out to war out in the sea. So we get the pilots, they get the opportunity to take off and fly their hours and run their combat missions while the ship does all its, uh, everybody that has the job on that ship 
trains to do their job, they're in a wartime uh, environment. So, and it's basically six on, six off, 24 hours a day. So you're nothing but working, uh, no, no time to really enjoy yourself. You know, it's straight battle I understand. Um, operations. Thank you, Ray. It says the Kitty Hawk launched its first sailing in 1960 in May. And the USS Kitty Hawk, according to Wikipedia, is a CV-63. And it is decommissioned now as the United States Navy supercarrier. Amazing. The Kitty Hawk was actually named after a city in North Carolina. And it is a first of three classes of aircraft carriers to be commissioned, and it's the last to be decommissioned. The USS Iowa, the Midway, and the Kitty Hawk are now pieces of historic art that we can visit and appreciate the service members and their gift and sacrifice to our nation. Thank you, George, for earning your Army and Navy medals of achievement and also your U.S. Army combat patch. And Navy Unit Commendation Medal. That is amazing to think back that 20 years of your life you spent with your comrades. Um, tell us one of the funniest stories you had docking in some of the places around the world you were able to travel, compliments of the U.S. Navy. Okay, so we when we arrived to Japan, uh, that was my first time there. And I guess our ship had a, a bad reputation. <laughs> so we were called <laughs> the Kitty Shitty. Uh, I guess in prior deployments, all the sailors would arrive and then they would just cause uh, mayhem, you know, going to the bar, drinking, trying to talk to women. So when we arrived on the Japan base, they basically told all the people working there and all the other civilians was when the ship is here, stay indoors. Keep your daughters inside the house. Don't be out. So when we arrived, we expected to see people. That whole base was empty. <laughs> so we were just trying to figure out what happened, you know? So that was kind of <laughs> funny. The company B-ladies that dance and swing with the naval sailors that land on the dock. And you certainly had a lot of partying and good times. And we attribute that to military patriotic songs. Do you remember back in the 90s? music that you guys would party to. I'm a, a product of the 90s and I was actually in the military when you were during the Persian Gulf era. Um, tell me some of the songs you danced to and how you got through when you would do PT on the ship, physical training. Well, you know, we really didn't do much PT because on the ship, we, we, had a, we basically had a weight room. So we were encouraged to use the weight room uh, because on the ship, you really don't have space. Uh, yes. You have the flight deck. But most of the time, there's equipment there, planes. So very limited space. Music, we, we basically would just get our own music, put it inside the play, play deck. And so did you out. earn rank quickly? And did you get the top bunk or what? No, no. Well, I was lucky when I arrived to my ship, uh, all the other sailors wanted the metal bunk and the top bunk for some reason. So there was nothing but lower bunk. So I had to climb into my bunk. And I, I found out why. Uh, when they wax the floors, all that dust goes inside your bed. Oh. <laughs> so every time when they would clean the barracks, mop the floor, wax them, I would come to my bed and I had all nothing but this lint 
and dust and I had to remake my bed and change my sheets. Right, right. So a day in the life there, Master at Arms retired. Let's share with some naval sailors that did right and wrong and what the capacity of your job as a military policeman entailed. I know I worked with NJP and Marines got in trouble in the 1990s during the Rodney King era and all this stuff was happening. And there's a lot of temptation in the military with like women and all this stuff. Let's talk about without divulging any personal information, how greatly the military gives members a chance to recover from their choices and what you have to do to enforce non-judicial punishment. Okay, well, while you're on the ship, we have rules and regulations. We have to patrol the ship uh, when there's all quarters called or if we have a fire drill. Our job is to go check all the barracks to make sure everybody we, we reported to their to their section because a lot of people are tired and they're like, no, I'm just going to skip this drill. So part of our job was to just patrol and make sure everybody's where they're supposed to be at. And second, um, if there was reports of drugs being used, so our job was to kind of try try to find leads, try to investigate and determine uh, who where the drugs came from. Because every time we would go into port, some sellers decided to do wrong, you know, sneak in booze, um, drugs, those type of things. And then, of course, once we're on port and we've been drinking, everybody somehow wants to fight for something so minor. So most of our job was MP work, trying to collect all the drunks, break up fights, hmm. and make sure the sellers were not hurting each other. And sometimes... Some sailors would get arrested by that country. So we'd have to go and pick them up from their jail and, and escort them back. I understand. Thank you so much. And a measure of your job had to do with safety on the ship as well. While policing on one of your stints, if you found anything wrong with the ship, you're also trained to know about technology, engineering, and basic general safety of the ship's operations. Is that true? Yes, yes. We all trained to be a firefighting team. So whenever there was a drill, when there was an accident, anything of fire, we were all trained to respond. So my, my field was part of the engineering field. So they kind of taught us how to turn off certain nozzles and bowels just in case the ship starts to flood. Sure. So that was one of our tests as being law enforcement. We had a, if there was an accident, or a drill, we knew where to go to turn off certain battles because everybody reported to their battle uh, uh, section. So the ranking system to reach a master at arms and, and military police in the Navy, is that earning rank in the regular naval enlisted side of things and with regard to military police? Uh, what happens is, well, Master of Arms is a field, so that's a rate. So you basically ap- apply for it, because I came from the engineering department to the Master of Arms, and they have a class called the 9545, and it's just a two-week academy where they just give you the basic law enforcement training, handcuffing, self-defense. So then you kind of transfer over to the MPU unit. Then, once you're ready to be a full vouch master of arms, then you get sent to A school. A school, that's when you spend 
this is like in an academy, and that's when you learn everything from law enforcement to shipboard life and everything. So, Wow, that's amazing, George. Well, we want to talk about your, a day in the life of your real career for over 20 years, where you've served in the community. Once you retired from the Navy and your other job, now you have a combined total 40 years really, of safety, community, and learning how to police. And we want to encourage everyone that may be looking for a new career during this time in our lives to visit Navy.com about active duty and recruiting careers in the U.S. Navy. And we want to share also about some of the greatest paying jobs with our Metropolitan Police Departments. What would you like to share about the differences and likenesses of being in the military and serving with your badge of honor in our community? Okay, with the military, you go to an academy, you learn the ropes, you know law, you know, you start learning the articles, the law, the law. So that's the job that you're going to be applying to the military side. Law enforcement with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, it's almost the same, but now you're, you're applying it to a huge city of Las Vegas. So I got hired and got sent to an academy, and that was the most challenging academy I have ever been through. A lot of people ask me, so how was it? I go, well, you got, imagine getting a year of college requirements and putting them together and completing it in three months with physical training and self-defense. So you're constantly studying, polishing your boots, getting your uniform ready, learning the laws, because when you have the inspections, they give you the test, like what's what's area or what's the article 12. And then if you have it wrong, then they tell you to drop on your hands and do push-ups. So three months, I had no life. It was basically work, study, uh, sleep, nonstop. So very challenging. Wow, Ray. So that shows you mental, physical, social, and spiritual readiness, plus naval reserve duty, while you were serving as an officer of the law. So let's talk about your use of, uh, was it Krav Maga for you at that time when you served 20 years in our force? Or did you learn other forms of martial arts as well? It was uh, Kwaekwondo, takes takedowns. That was the basics that we learned. And La La Vegas PPD also used like Kwaekwondo take takedowns. So uh to use the bare minimum force necessary to subdue a subject. Um, right now, there's a lot of liability issues with use of force. So the department really look into what's safe and what's not safe. Yes. And we're held accountable if you do something wrong. So we have to reflect back to our training and do what's right. Because we all know what's right. You know, sometimes we might get worked up and, you know, let the anger get the best of us but that's when you have your buddy there to kind of help stop you and kind of say hey let me step in most definitely well through your story today we've truly painted a picture about having your buddies there knowing your comrades on the ship having people around you that can tell the signs of maybe if you're worried or if you're happy or sad and that's very important especially knowing to ask for help knowing how to get to your benefits, knowing that it's okay to have a bad day or have a good day and to share with someone else. How did you find, let's start with first, your lovely queen, Ceci, while you were serving? Okay, well, she is my second wife. <laughs> so, 
let me just say my first wife was horrible. <laughs> we just were young. I met her in the military when I was in San Diego. We were both young. Uh, really didn't have much in common. You know, we thought we were in love, you know. So once I left the Navy and moved to Vegas, uh, we had two children. Um, and then she decided that, you know what, I think I want to be single. <laughs> so we split up, you know, so I was a single dad for five years while I was working with the LVPD and doing Navy Reserve. So that was a challenge. You know, I had two wow. small kids, what, two toddlers. Uh, one was five and the other one was two. And I had to juggle work, reserves, daycare, picking up, dropping up. Or to, uh, dropping off, and then once you get divorced, the wife, the ex-wife, becomes so spiteful. So it wasn't fun. It was challenging. So then I met Ceci. Um, we dated. Well, first we became friends. That was the key. I wasn't looking to get involved. I just wanted a friend to talk to because I just had a horrible divorce. Um, I really did not trust women at the time because of everything that I've been through. So we became friends and we just talked. And she had a son from a parent's relationship and the same age as my, my son. So they became best friends. And we would just spend time by taking the kids to the park and just watch them play. And, and that's how we started. And then eventually we said, you know what, let's take it to the next level. We started dating. We dated for five years because I was afraid to commit. And finally, I said, hey, well, then we had our daughter. And that's when I said, hey, you know what? It's time to try again, you know? And then we got married and we've been together for 20 years now. Wow. Well, America, you are listening to the number 20 of 20 solid years of love and service with our special guest, Ray Rangel, MA1, retired U.S. Navy, and also to our LVPD doing a great job in the city and world of entertainment. I am so happy to have you on the show to show that it is possible to come from a small town in Texas to watch your brother recover, to honor your parents with hard work, and to love both your family and your wife with such dedication. I've had the pleasure of meeting you both. And I just want to say veteran strong. We are veteran strong. The first meeting we had lasted almost five hours of us pouring our hearts out to each other. So I commend you as a man, an alpha male serving all these years, taking control of an area and serving many, many, many more veterans that are lost in the labyrinth of trying to get to their benefits. And so I just applaud you and I want to thank you for educating our veterans live today because in this next segment, we're going to give the world creative resiliency solutions through your business that your wife helps you to run. But before we go into that last amazing resource by Ceci and Ray Rangel, we're going to be able to share with you the Veterans Crisis Hotline number at 800 800- 273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. Housing, health, employment, and education services are yours. There are so many programs and so little time to apply, and sometimes the computer or paperwork and a stack of words from the VA giving you your benefits can be defeating. Or you may have 
already received your benefits and you used a helping agency like the DAV.org or maybe one of the other organizations like the American Legion, the Purple Heart Foundation. But today we're going to give you a local resource where friendship is key. The same way we create friendships in the military, you may need a friend and we're here to help you. So from Cami's Two Civvies, we introduce the Veteran Strong LLC of the city of North Las Vegas and the state of Nevada. We want to commend our key spouse, Ceci Rangel and Ray Rangel for offering these services that help veterans find their benefits. And how do we do it? with higher education. When you first got out of the military, when did you notice that you needed help? Well, I was deployed with my second ma- ma- marriage. So on my first marriage, I just left the Navy, um, went through my divorce. And then once I was assessing, that's when I was in the reserve unit. And that's when I got the deployed. Um, when I came back from my first deployment in 2005, while I'm Iraq, I had issues. I came back a different person. Um, my anxiety was off the roof, uh, anger, outbursts. Um, I just wasn't right. Um, they, they prepared us more to go to war than to prepare us to come back home. So when I came home, I was a mess. And I had my wife, and she noticed right away I was not the same person. So mm-hmm. um, we fought a lot. I always blamed her for all the problems, uh, you know, so I was wrong. And and I was in denial because most vets are, you know, when they come back, they say, you know what, this is just how it is. I'll get over it. I can fix it myself. Um, and it took a while for her to finally say, hey, you need help because I was just too angry all the time. The kids would do something small and I would flip out, you know, so. Finally, she convinced me to go. Then I spoke to Psych at the VA. That's when I started talking to a counselor. And that's when I started really understanding what I was going through. Because once you get seen by Psych, they give you the Psych eval. They determine how severe your issues are. Then they set up a treatment plan. So I went through a whole year worth of counseling. Uh, to find out what my triggers are so I can kind of know before I let them make me get pissed off. Plus, my wife also went counseling with me because she did not understand how I was, how the soldier mentality just can't turn off the switches Mm. when they come back from the appointment. So we're still combat ready. We have not turned off the fuses yet. The civilians don't understand it. We don't understand the civilians. So my wife had to be trained, hey, when he's in his zone, don't poke at him. It's like poking a tiger in the nose. The tiger is going to attack. So she had to learn to kind of give me my space, give me my time to unwind. Then we can talk later. Then I got trained to know that Ceci wasn't a soldier. So I couldn't just tell her to, Stop crying. Suck it up, you know, because the more she cried, the more anger I got. So I had to understand that she's a civilian. She's not trained. She hasn't been where you've been. So you got to see it from her viewpoint, too. And I have to say that counseling really helped us Um, because I was at we were at the point where she was going to threaten to leave me because it was that bad. And 
if it wasn't for her support, I probably don't know where I would be. Because I was getting in trouble at work also. I was being too aggressive while I was working. So I've had the sergeant kind of pull me aside one day and say, hey, uh, you need to stop using so much force because you're too aggressive. You mm -hmm. go from zero to 100 in like a second. So that's liability issue. So I would have done something wrong, hurt somebody, used too much force, and now I'm being charged with an assault, party losing my job. So now for everything that I've worked for, I might lose marriage, lose my career, over the issues that I had that I was in denial. So that was the biggest challenge is vets have to understand that they had issues and follow through when you have loved ones telling you, hey, you need help. That was the biggest thing. That was beautiful. That's beautiful, Ray. Thank you so Thank much. You. I'm so glad you made it out. So many veterans decide not to make it out because their spouses don't understand, their friends don't understand, they feel, and their families may not understand. But with the proper counseling and decision inside yourself to get help, we applaud you. And for those that are lost, we ache because we want to do something. So I just know that there's value in this interview to reach out to so many people that can relate to what you just shared and to put it in such a beautiful series of a couple of minutes may have been years of suffering. So I'm glad that you're answering your calling with purpose. You realize the conditions, the consequences, and now you get to celebrate with your comrades and you do it by creating action, a call to action. And so I just want to say thank you so much to your beautiful wife. She gets to sit on the back of some chrome and get in the wind. And you guys have things to do to make your marriage last. And you have grandkids and your kids that get to celebrate with you that you're alive and well. And the battle is forever. We don't just wake up after VA counseling and be all right. This is a lifetime plight to relate to others that it may be a bad day or a good day, but we can identify the triggers and overcome them each and every day at the present time. Right, Ray? Yes, that is so correct. Well, next, we want to talk about your amazing organization, and we want to share with everyone that we are licensed professionals. I happen to be a broker in the area. My number is BS01461019, offering housing solutions to our military for over 25 years in California and Nevada. And I'm also a DAV claims officer, chapter service officer on the ground level, leading members of our military about to retire and already retired to their VA benefits package. And I also have the license to become a resiliency training mentor because of the US Air Force. So I want to thank all of my mentors and I want to thank you because now we are both charitable members with our uh, LLCs wanting to reach out to the veteran family. And I just am so happy that there's a future in working with you to publicize your gift back to our military families worldwide. Tell us about your new company at Veteran Strong LLC. Okay, well, there's a story behind how we started the company. Um, in 2010, I came back from my second deployment. I had a shoulder injury. Um, so instead of the Army taking care of me, they basically just gave me the cortisone shot, said, hey, you're good to go. Go home and check in with VA. So I go home and check in with the VA. The VA tells me, what are you doing here? The, VA, the Army should have fixed you. 
I, I don't know. I'm just following the, the, the orders. You no. Know? So I was just an average vet. Didn't know much. So the, the VA gave me the surgery. They corrected my shoulder. I had a tear. Um, now, after the surgery, they said, hey, now you can file for a disability claim. I have no knowledge, no education. I'm just going by what they're telling me to, to, to do. So I go to the VA hospital. I talk to a BSO. That's my first time to make contact with the BSO. Um, there's good BSOs and there's bad BSOs. So the one that I spoke to, he's been there a long time. And he meant well, but he wasn't proactive. He wasn't really trying to get tell me, hey, you just got back from your second deployment. Here's what you might qualify for. Have you had issues? What's your medical issues? It wasn't like that. I had a, I envisioned that the VA is there to help us. So I envisioned you walk in, so somebody holds your hand, walks you from station to station to make sure you get everything that you need and they answer every question that you need. But these employees can only do so much. So when you walk in, you have the PTSD, you have the anger, you have the anxiety. So now you're, you're trying to get help. You're only getting small answers and bits and pieces and you're handed this paperwork that doesn't make sense. And that's why a lot of vets, they walk away. It's like, you know what? I can't figure this out. Right. So this VSO did the best he could. I provided him the information. And so I filed for 23 items that I thought I had issues with. My back had three pressure discs. My knees, my ankles, my pressured neck, plus, of course, PTSD, the anxiety, the depression. So sure. we filed. I waited a whole year with no feedback. You basically file. You're kept out in the dark. Then I received my package from the VA, and I only got 10% mm. for my left shoulder. And I was, I was in shock. I was angry. I was like, how can I get my benefits if I followed all the instructions, spoke to everybody that I was supposed to, and this is what I get? Hmm. That's when I started. That's when I say, you know what? I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to become my own advocate, and I'm going to educate myself. And that's when I researched VA law, searched how to file a claim, and I just did that for six months, just, just, just to understand the process. And then once I got that knowledge, then I refiled again by myself. And then I went from 10% to 90%. Oh, and I say, oh, my goodness, I went through the same thing. But you and I together, like many fellow veterans, have a voice to help others. We suffered through going from 10 to 60, 70, 80, 90, and a hundred percent. Do not lose hope if you're listening and you are in a position like Mr. Ray Rangel just explained, waiting for your benefits, or you don't know where to apply. Today is your creative resiliency solution. So if you need help and you've tried with your VA counselor and you've gone to the psychologist, you've gone to the chiropractor, you've gone to the physical therapy, you've gone to the women's clinic, and you've gone to your general practitioner, to no avail, never give up. Please give us a call at the Christina Silva Show and Ray Rangel and I will lead you to understanding your next right to your pathway with the VA direct, the VA has ramped up its systems 
at ebenefits.va.gov, but there's nothing like having a live person, not a computer, to lead you to your benefits your way. What you earn, you know what hurts, and you know how you feel you should be compensated by following the rules in the federal regulations. We can help you. Now, we're not the doctors, but we are the caring comrades that want you to be veteran strong. Right, Ray? Yes, you know, that's the whole concept. Vets helping vets. Most Whenever definitely. we join the military, we report to our first command. We're brand new. So who's there? A senior enlisted personnel that has all the experience, all the knowledge. So he teaches you the ropes. Make sure that you get checked in on time. So once you go and you get out of the military and you go to the VA, there's no team there. It's you against the VA. So that's why we developed the, the process to help vets file because I was in their shoes seven years ago. Yes. So I know how it feels, how to not have the knowledge, the education, how, how to navigate the VA system, how to get a second opinion diagnosis, how yes. to write a statement and support to kind of explain how you was before the military, during the military, what happened to you. What are your medical issues and how it affects you now with your home life, Mm -hmm. your relationships, and with your work life? That is the whole key. Um, Writing a statement which averages 3,000 words or more, and most vets don't like to write, you know, and they just don't know how to put it from their brain onto paper. Hmm. So I guess uh, by me going to college and writing so many assignments and essays, I got real good in writing solid statements. So that's how I wrote mine. I wrote everything about what I experienced, my injuries. Uh, Because the VA says, you have to have medical proof from the military. And if you don't have it, then they think that you can't file a claim. No, that's wrong. You just get a medical diagnosis, you write the statement, and you file for what you're in type Well, everyone, this has been an amazing show. We promise you creative resiliency solutions through the trailblazing portal of Ray Rangel and his wife, Ceci, today. If you see a very nice custom Harley from a soft tail to a Harley Davidson road glide, you know that help is on the way. Veteran Strong Consulting. That's Veteran Strong LV. Dot com, VeteranStrongLasVegas.com. Once again, VeteranStrongLV.com. You've been listening to the Christina Silva Show, educating our veterans live about service from a master at arms to mentor with Ray Rangel, our special guest. Stay with us because next week we'll have our Christmas edition, educating our veterans live on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks for joining us, Ray, and happy holidays. Bye. Thank Never you. Bye. 